Strange Brews is supported by Goose Island Beer Company. Since 1988, Goose Island has constantly innovated how and what they brew and introduced numerous award-winning beers, including their barrel-aged stouts and ales. Goose Island, to what's next? That's at gooseisland.com. If the BA doesn't want to call us a craft brewer anymore, shame on them. I'm ready to be done with the word craft beer anyway. Come on, Joe, let's have that beer, huh? Yes, sir. Right away, sir. Why do you want that beer so bad? Because he's thirsty, dummy. Cheap beer and a sympathetic ear. Step right up. What kind of beer? What kind of beer do you like? Dad, Bob broke your beer, so I did. Doug broke it. From WBEZ Chicago, this is the Strange Brews Podcast. I'm Allison Cuddy. And I'm Andrew Gill. Today on the show, we talk with... A founder of founders, Dave Engbers, and their brewmaster, Jeremy Kosmicki. Will be joining us from founders from uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah, they're actually coming here to join us. So that will be exciting. Um, You know, I was thinking, it's not completely clear who created the first session IPA. Mm -hmm. But it seems like a pretty strong consensus that the first breakout hit of the session IPA market was the Founders All Day IPA. And in honor of that, for this first segment, our uh, Beers to Fuss Over and Dissect segment, we're going to have a newer Session IPA from Evil Twin. I'm going to pop the can right now. (laughs) Oh, yeah, extended. A little spray in the face, which is perfect for the uh, Citra Sunshine Slacker. All right, and of course, the beer to fuss over and dissect is not a complete segment without our fussy beer music. And uh, this week we have Jay Bartell, um, a singer-songwriter who spent some time in Asheville, North Carolina. And um, Is that how you're connecting it to the slacker aesthetic <laughs> that we've got going on here? I, yeah, I'm not sure. That's open for interpretation, I guess. I haven't really thought that through very much but um this is seemed like very kind of fussy music you know Uh Um, that's what i look for when i'm looking for fussy beer music so this is a song called lily and it's from an album called loyalty being re-released on cinderlin records um all right so let's get into the flavors of this beer a little bit i like the flavor of this music i mean we've only heard a bit but it's sort of like uh a very slack version of a, a surfer theme. Yeah. You know? It's like a really drawn-out version of Pipeline or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll just staying on the one note. What's going to happen? Yeah. It's got a little <laughs> noirish element, too, for that Big Lebowski imagery, maybe. Yeah, you see the Big Lebowski, um, Jeff Bridges' character, the slacker. Yeah. Or no, the, not the slacker, the dude. The dude, uh, From yeah. the Big Lebowski in this image on the can. And, you know, I just think of that scene when he's meeting uh, the Big Lebowski and he says, you go out looking for a job dressed like that? He says, job? What? <laughs> what day is it? Tuesday? It's kind of a nice variation on the, the Rattler. Yeah. You know, it's not as juicy. Mm-hmm. It's puckery. Yeah. Which I think is good. I think sometimes the Rattlers, you can only take so much before you need to move on. Right, right. Well, speaking of moving on, we should move on to our next uh, segment, the Beer News segment. Um, We'll get to that right after a quick break 
uh, for some messages from the BEZ podcasting family. much does a painter share in common with a dancer, an actor with a trumpet player? On the latest general admission, we test our theory that all artists share a little bit in common by comparing the life of a stand-up comic to that of a professional wrestler. Pro wrestler Colt Cabana and stand-up comedian Adam Burke join us to hash it out. Boom, boom. Cabana. Boom, boom. To download or stream this show, visit wbez.org slash general admission. This is the Strange Brews Podcast. I'm Andrew Gill with Allison Cuddy, and it's time for our beer news segment. And first story up, Allison, is about what some people would call an evil empire, and we're not talking about ABM Bev. <laughs> what are we talking about? We're talking about North Korea and its bid to become a tourist mecca. Yeah. So... I don't know if you can be evil and be appealing to tourists. I know. I guess it's in the eye of the beholder. But yeah, they're putting out a bid for a $39 million brewery as part of this tourism complex. The Wansan Kumgang Development Zone is seeking foreign investment in more than 100 separate projects, including a brewery. So I will quote uh, an independent consultant who's helping raise foreign funds. It's a nice area. It's on the coast, and it has the same qualities and infrastructure that once made places like Shenzhen and Hong Kong such attractive investment zones. Which breweries do you think might invest in North Korea, though? Well, you know? okay, here's the interesting thing, Andrew. So I was like looking into North Korea and found this article from a few years ago. A guy who works in Hong Kong uh, went and toured North Korea's brewing scene. Oh, amazing. Uh, Josh Thomas, he works for Ogilvy & Mather in Hong Kong. And apparently there's a, actually, I mean, North Korea is this, you know, they don't call it the Hermit Kingdom for no reason. Yeah. There are many, many, especially Americans who have not been inside North Korea. Don't I mean, we, we know a lot about what's happening there, but haven't been there. But microbrewing is actually a fairly widespread phenomenon in North Korea. Um, wow. So he went on a tour. Yeah. And I mean, it seems odd because this is a country where you know, because of the embargo, there's a real lack of um, basic staples. Um, reports are starvation levels are really high. But the the things that you need for beer are pretty, you know, I mean, if you can make bread, you can make beer, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. So apparently he said there's actually this quite impressive brewing scene. Um, and because there is a shortage of um, propane and the infrastructure is rather lacking. You can't like have like centralized brewing and then kind of distribute it throughout the country. So actually a lot of places have do their own brewing. In his report with very mixed results, some of it is fantastic. He talked about the Paradise Microbrewery and an international hotel. The Yangakdo Hotel apparently has an impressive big brewery on site. He was actually able to speak to the brewer there, uh, a woman. So I, I don't know. Maybe it would be, you know, for an investment to develop a homegrown brewery. You know, the idea of the whole winning hearts and minds and uh, under the Bush presidency, uh, getting democracy to spread through American values and craft brewing is something that's developed in America in a, in a large way. And we sort of associate it with this uh, – 
liberty and like these American kinds of values. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the the seeds of democracy could like sprout through the brewing culture in North Korea. Hmm. Interesting. That's an interesting idea. Who knows? That's probably reaching, but. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. It would be interesting to see if there's plans for, um, not that Cuba is North Korea, but in terms of these places where there's been this long, drawn out detente or embargoes, and you have a country ruled by um, some kind of repressive or dictatorial regime, or at least that's the impression. that, that that whether craft beer will be a part of the development of Cuba and yeah the reentry of American capital into I mean, Cuba. By the the other hand, you know the other way this could be going is this call for a thirty nine million dollar brewery to be built. You know by the central government in North Korea could be a way to centralize the beer production and move away from this sort of like robust. A, you know, smaller producer scene where – because, yeah, I'd seen somewhere else that North Korea does have a different brewery in every town and it's kind of due to the infrastructure mm-hmm. problems that mm-hmm. they have. Um, so this could centralize it and bring it all under – you know, like in China, they have the the snow beer, that one beer that's like the most popular beer in the world just because it's the number one beer in China. Um, and that – you know, could be the way that North Korea is trying to move is to like, let's make one beer for all of North Korea and, you know, get rid of all these different differences, you know. So who knows? It's all conjecture. It would be interesting if craft beer could actually play a role in correcting like what the worst human rights record in the world. (laughs) Yeah, I would love that. Um, I think we all would love that, right? What do you think, uh, Strange Brews listeners? Uh, write in strangebrews at wbez.org. What role could craft beer play in spreading democracy throughout the world? If you can come up with a great idea or theory, we'd love to hear it. You can write in or call the fan hotline and leave your, your theories there. From one of the most repressive regimes in the world to a great example of direct democracy that still happens every four years in America, the Iowa State Caucuses. Here to discuss the role beer plays in this unique event is a veteran member of our Society of Two Growlers and a Microphone. You might remember that's our loose network of reporters stationed all around the country who help us cover beer, where it happens, and I'll let our guest introduce herself. Sure. Um, my name is Juana Summers, and I'm the politics editor at Mashable. Juana, I noticed you published an article recently about uh, Iowa having better beer than Bud Light. Uh, it was a call out to the candidates who are who are stumping all across the state for the Iowa caucus. What brought on this article for you? What was it that, that sort of you know, kicked you into gear to write this? Well, we're always looking for fun ways to cover the Iowa caucus because it's this big spectacle that you have to cover every single time you cover um, the presidential campaign each year. And as I was going through photos to make a photo gallery, I noticed that former Florida Governor Jeb Bush was at the Iowa State Fair, as candidates are wont to do, and he was drinking a Bud Heavy, which is not the best beer in the world, to say the very least. And 
as we were going through photos, I was thinking maybe I'd write something about it. We found this photo from President Obama in 2012, hanging out in the Bud Light tenants at the top of my article. He's standing between these lit up signs for Bud Light and Bud Light Lime. And I, you know, I spent a lot of time in Iowa. I grew up just three hours away from Des Moines in Kansas City, Missouri. Spent a lot of time there and have been to a lot of really, really great breweries there. And so we just thought it would be a fun thing for our audience to kind of highlight just what kind of good beer there is there and, you know, maybe nudge the presidential candidates to try some of the great craft beers that are actually in Iowa. And as it turns out, some of them have. Rick Santorum, for example, visited Confluence Brewing, which is my personal favorite Iowa brewery. Uh, former Maryland governor and Baltimore Mayor Martin O'Malley has done an event at, I believe, Peachtree Brewing out in Knoxville, Iowa. So some candidates really are getting in on the craft beer craze. I just wish they do a little bit more of that and a little bit less Budweiser. It's funny because that, that photo of uh, the president that you just mentioned, he looks so happy drinking that Bud beer and being at the Iowa State Fair, which I'm sure many people who go to it feel that way. Um, do you think, though, there's a kind of aversion to Rick Santorum and others aside, an aversion to be seen with one of the fancy, quote unquote, beers in your hand as opposed to a good all-American Bud or Miller or you know what have you? Sure. I think there's certainly a case to be made for that. It's been really fascinating over, I've covered politics for five or six years now to watch people kind of figure out how to navigate beer. You see politicians who want to just saddle up to the bar with the good old all-American brew, those household names that you and I and everybody else knows. However, you're also seeing candidates really embrace craft beer. If you think back in May, Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side of the aisle was at Smutty Nose Brewery, a former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, who I may have just taken a pot shot at for Budweiser, actually had one of his earliest events at Four Peaks Brewery in Tempe, Arizona. So I think that candidates are trying to figure out just how to handle beer. It's kind of a risk reward. You're not going to win a lot of friends if you're talking about a craft brew that no one's heard of. But as most of these candidates are looking to appeal to a younger base, these are those beer consumers who like those that beer that's made in their backyard, trying the local flavors and things like that. It also could be a political asset for them. Right. Or, I mean, and, you know, we've talked about this on previous episodes, the fact that craft brews are now a, a significant presence at state fairs in Iowa, in Minnesota. I mean, there's like a whole craft beer hall, I think, at the Minnesota State Fair. Yeah, there was even a, a tragic robbery or something Right, last year right, that then, we talked yeah. about. Um, uh, but that, you know, craft brewers, like the big brewers, represent sort of the entrepreneurial business spirit. I mean, small businesses have been a huge part of the rhetoric of presidential campaigns over the last little while. So you'd think there'd be a kind of uh, a push in that direction as well from that point of view, not just younger, but also this is the business sector. Absolutely. Um, when I was still working at NPR, I did a story on the federal excise tax that impacts craft brewers across the country. And I would talk to people on either side of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, and they made the argument that it's so important to support these craft breweries because they are small businesses. They're entrepreneurs who are going out there and staking it all on the line to really build something. And it just so happens that the thing they love and the thing they've chosen to invest their time and their resources and their heart and soul into just happens to be beer. Take a look at Iowa alone, according to the brewery. Guild there, there are 55 craft breweries in Iowa, and that's up from 25 back in 2010. So it's really got an exploding scene, and you're seeing that all around the country. So there is certainly an economic argument to be made there, whether you're a conservative or a liberal. One other question. This is a side note, but another emerging story in politics and beer last week was uh, there was finally proof that Claire McCaskill had shotgunned a beer when... <laughs> 
Did you see all this stuff about uh, it was mostly female senators shotgunning beers and stuff? And any comments or thoughts on that trend? You know, if the senator ever wants to shotgun a beer with me, I did grow up in Missouri and I'd be happy to do it. I This was in response I believe it was a bet with her her children after her her victory back in the the Senate race. So I saw lots of senators on, on Twitter. Um, Senator Debbie Stabenow was saying that you know if Hillary Clinton wins the White House in 2016, Senator McCaskill can shotgun a Missouri beer and children can Michigan beer. So there's certainly a lot of energy around that. I think that she it makes a great point to those of us who like to enjoy a good beer or two that it's it's not senators are you know they're just people like us. Right. We were just talking about could craft beer topple one of the most repressive regimes in the world, North Korea, you know, (laughs) pie in the sky hopes there. But maybe shotgunning beer could be a way that senators or other politicians could reach across the aisle, you know, and and find common ground. Right. Let's have a craft beer battle for the next debate instead of watching all of these men and women stand up and align for the next GOP debate. I think we just have a beer from each of their home states and just have a little drinking contest. I would personally have a lot more fun with that. Maybe we'll do that in the office next time. that's yeah. a genius idea. I love that. They that all have to, to, to defend the best beer from their state and drink a copious amount of it. Absolutely. <laughs> Wanna great talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Wanna. Thank you all for having me. We'll take a quick break, then be back with the folks behind Founders Brewing Company. Well, this week, we'd love to thank our sponsors. First of all, Audible Podcasts. Um, you can get a free audiobook on us. If you go to audiblepodcast.com slash strange brews, they have 180,000 titles to choose from. Jeez. Yeah, a lot of books. It would take a long time to listen to all of those books. Think about it. But even if you start listening to one and it really doesn't suit your fancy, no problem with this deal from Audible, you can get another one. Audiblepodcast.com slash strange brews. You can try it on us. And uh, you could also check out Jake Melnick's. Yes. Jake um, Melnick's Corner Tap. It's a neighborhood craft beer bar in River North with over 50 tap lines. It's a great place to drink a beer and hang out with your friends, uh, watch a game if you're into baseball, for example. Um, They have great food as well. Voted Best Hot Wings in Chicago several times. They've got Slow Smoke Barbecue, hand-packed burgers, And if you want an alternative to beer, they also have handcrafted cocktails. I mean, they've got it all. Traitors. Traitors. (laughs) Oh, come on. (laughs) This is the Strange Brews Podcast. I'm Andrew Gill with Allison Cuddy, and we're joined today by uh, some of the most notable craft brewers in the Midwest, Uh, the folks behind Founders, Dave Engbers, a Founders founder. And Jeremy Kozmicki, the brewmaster at Founders. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming from uh, Michigan. We appreciate it. Uh, it's, a, it's a short, beautiful drive. <laughs> so one of the things I've noticed about you guys in other interviews and you know, just throughout the years is you make a strong point of saying Founders has no flagship beer. Uh, even though you know, we'll get into like other beers you're known for, but what beer would you have us try first? You know, what beer out of these are you most excited to have us try? All Day IPA is, uh, you know, as you kind of alluded to, um, it is our highest volume brand, but I still don't like using the word flagship. <laughs> Why um, not? Well, a flagship to me is uh, it's what defines a brewery. And I don't, I don't think that founders can be defined 
um, solely off of All Day IPA. Uh, phenomenal beer, extremely innovative, but um, you know we really cut our teeth in this arena with Dirty Bastard Scotch Ale, Breakfast Stout. Um, so Dirty Bastard was like your breakout beer. Yeah, I mean Dirty Bastard. It was, uh, I think, the fifth beer we ever produced. Thanks, um, Jeremy. It's so nice to have a head brewmaster, the brewmaster pouring your beer. Right, service. Yeah. Anyway, but you know, sometimes when I think of a flagship, I, I think that's the beer that absolutely defines a brewery. And I, I would, uh, I'd feel bad if. If Founders was defined solely off of All Day IPA, All Day came around at the at the right time. It was the beer for the for the moment, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that it's a trend that we'll see continue. Um, but you know, like Dave was saying, you know, we we cut our teeth on these strong beers, and All Day would not have flown ten years ago. It would have it would have flopped. No, yeah, All Day is something really interesting to me. So I I give All Day credit for launching the session IPA craze. You know, it was the biggest breakout session IPA to hit the market and it seemed like it prompted every brewery to have to create one, right? They may not have been the first. I, who knows? You know, you can debate that all day. Sure. But all day, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, but one thing I've read is that it took three years to develop this beer, right? And is that average or is that extremely long? No, that was, that was long for me, honestly. Um, but this is a beer that I was super passionate about. Um, this is the beer that I made for myself and for Dave and for all of the family that, you know, loved the hop character and the aroma, but just, you know, couldn't deal with 7.5% IPAs. Uh, you know, if you start in the afternoon and you're trying to work and you got to go home, you got stuff to do. But, you know, we drink beer. That's what we do. So um, having the, the, the lower alcohol uh, session beer was really just what had to be done at the time. and. So if, if having a flagship beer, I mean, in part, you don't want a beer to define founders, who you are and what you do. I just want to kind of close that thought. What what does define you? I mean, is it those big, bold flavors you were known for that, that you know, something like Dirty Bastard epitomizes and all-day IPA kind of innovates around? Or is it – what is it? What? I mean, to me, what defines founders is not not succumbing to any boundaries – um, full flavor, huge aromatics, complexity, um, you know, and, you know, I always say we don't do subtle very well. And so our, our beers are full of flavor and we want, uh, you know, I, the other phrase I tend to use a lot is we want you to taste our beer before it hits your lips. So aromatics is really, really important. Um, but we, you know, we want to give the consumer something that um, really wows them. You know, we want them to have a, a really unique experience. So with the beginnings of this brewery, though, there was kind of a false start. Like the initial f- couple of years, you've said your beers weren't bold enough, right? Well, they, they weren't. But, you know, if you, you go back into, you know, the, the mid to late 90s, there wasn't really a consumer base out there who was ready for full-flavored beers. Yeah. And so it, kind of our philosophy was we we're going to brew beers that hit a, a wide demographic – when we opened the brewery in late 97, you know, multiple breweries were, were opening up around the state of Michigan. And we were all kind of cookie cutter. Everyone had a pale ale. Everyone had an amber ale. Everyone had some type of wheat beer. And so when we saw all these breweries opening up doing the same thing, we said we need to do something to differentiate ourselves. And maybe this is an, our, our opportunity to kind of plant, plant our flag and say, all right, our beers are going to be bigger and bolder, more complex, bigger aromatics. 
Um, and that's really when we introduced Dirty Bastard. It went from having a Founders Pale Ale or a Founders Red Ale to Dirty Bastard. And it got a little sexier. Uh, we were starting to have fun. We trusted ourselves. You know, we were, we were a couple of guys in our mid-20s when we started the brewery. And all of a sudden, it started giving us the confidence to, to really own our business and really make it, uh, make it ours. It was like a make-or-break moment for you guys, right? Because you were really struggling. You had amassed all this debt, which is kind of – this is not surprising. I think most businesses, the first five years are real make-or-break. A lot of them don't make it through that first five. Yeah. But, I mean, you were in a sort of do-or-die kind of situation. Well, I guess we were – in a situation like that, it, things were kind of dire, but it, I wish it only lasted five years. It was really about 10 or 11 years. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, when you're in that kind of um, sink or swim situation, I mean, we really didn't have an option. Our, our option was to survive. Yeah. It's like you gave meaning to the cliche, innovate or die. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah right. And fortunately, you know, at the same time, uh, we brought on a couple new uh, brewers, Jeremy being one of them. And, you know, the from that day forward, um, we said, you know, let's, let's not look at cost of goods. Um, let's not look at um, – you know anything that's going to hold us back? And just said, let's go for it. We're our job is to make the best beer we can. So if our process is going to change, if the ingredients are harder to get or difficult to to get, um, or expensive, it didn't matter. If we if we had to charge more for the beer, that's what we were going to do. But ultimately, what we did is became a product driven company. And um, I mean, that's where we are today. I mean, we will do whatever we can to make the beer better. And it's always been about the beer. Yeah, and Jeremy, so you came on at like 2000, right, as mm-hmm. uh, as a brewer. And uh, and I, I read a, that in 2001 you had the half million dollars of debt. So did you understand the severity of the situation? <laughs> you know you what you were walking into. That's pretty hilarious. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Actually, well, so I joined in 2000. I was actually uh, an unemployed home brewer at the time. Okay. And, uh, and I took an <laughs> so this ent- was a big step up. Well, I took an entry-level job on the packaging line. They actually hired me the yeah. day I showed up oh, there. Oh, okay. And I was like, okay, great. Well, you know, I didn't I didn't love Founders Beer at the time, to tell you the truth, but um, they were the biggest brewery in town. And, and by that, it was not very big, but it was my best opportunity. Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, you know, we t- I topped it out and hung out there for a while. But, yeah, after being there for uh, a couple years and then I became assistant brewer in 2002. Okay. And that's when we really started to work on some new ideas and stuff. But Did at you? that point, I, that's when I kind of realized that um, – yeah, this company was in trouble, so I was like, "Well, I'm going to learn everything I can at this place and try to get a job somewhere else." And then, oh, so you were looking around? You were, you well, were yeah, saying... I was just trying to be, you know, realistic. <laughs> what was the atmosphere like? I mean, what's it like to walk into a situation like that? Uh, you know, it's, to Mike and Dave's credit, they always were positive and uh, and and fun guys to hang out with. And honestly, I had I came from nothing, so this opportunity for me was was everything. And um, you know, I was I was. You know, it was going to make the most of it, regardless. Yeah, because I mean, I, I'm imagining myself in that situation. I would have felt really stressed and anxious, and you know, I would have been like, "What am I doing?" Um, and I, I was curious if your attitude was like, you know, 
I've got some ideas, and maybe this is the place where I can put them into action. Oh, absolutely. You know? I had nothing to lose, and I had every opportunity in the world. Like they've said, they, I, they never limited me as far as like what I could spend on ingredients or, or anything like that. They were just like, make good beer. That's all you got to do. So it was a dream come true for, for an aspiring home brewer, honestly. That's amazing. So what good beer are we drinking now? So Dirty Bastard is kind of the beer that really, I, I always say it's the beer that put us on the right path. And as soon as Dirty Bastard hit, we knew we needed to reach a, a broader or maybe more of a niche audience. And we knew we couldn't do anything that had a ton of bitterness, but we wanted to do something that was big and bold. And uh, so we were kind of going through the, the BJCP guidelines, the Beer Judge Certification Program. And um, all of a sudden, you know, when I, when I started looking at Scotch Ales, I'm like, this, this seems to fit on, on every different level. The original name, I think, was going to be called Fat Bastard. And uh, there were trademark issues, and we were sitting in an office, and we said, "What about um, what about Dirty Bastard?" And uh, you know, West Michigan's known as one of the most conservative areas in the United States. <laughs> and I remember I got a look from several people like, "We can't do that." Can't take And um, I'm like, "We're probably going to go out of business in a few months anyway, so we may as well just go for it." And we called a, our attorney, and uh, it was clean. It, so. Um, there were no trademark issues, it was and so clean we decided, as far as trademarks, but yeah. very dirty and bastard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, very dirty and bastard. <laughs> um, anyway, but this was, uh, and it, it's really kind of an interesting beer because it's, it's you know eight and a half percent alcohol. Uh, it's almost too smooth. I mean, it's it's it can be very dangerous. Uh, you know, it's got the the caramel malt sweetness, mm-hmm. which which appeals to so many people. It's almost like, as weird as it sounds, Dirty Bastard can be a gateway beer mm-hmm. um, for somebody that they know they doesn't they don't like beer. You know, they don't like Budweiser, uh, but it's so far removed from that. But it's got that sweetness that kind of like will draw people in, yeah. and some hop bitters yeah. to balance it. So as weird as it seems, at an eight point five percent Scotch ale, it, it it sort of like has brought a lot of people to our beer. Yeah, yeah Scotch ale was one of the first beers I got into. It is interesting too that it seems like I mean we had this on the podcast like sour beers, for example, are often a gateway beer for people who really like cocktails. And mm-hmm. you wouldn't think like sours are where you're going to first go when you right. start drinking beer, but it's kind of fascinating that the more extreme quote unquote styles often are the ones that draw people in rather than a lager. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. To me, I, I think. Uh, I think what what's interesting about beer is it, it's it's a conversation that we're starting, and it's um, that's what's so great about beer is because everyone can have an opinion. There's no right or wrong, um, and you're not really getting judged by it. So um, that's why you know having this this wide gamut of, of flavor profiles is so important to us at Founders. Is that um, you know we're not going to say if, if you don't like IPAs you're not cool, um, because you know who are we just because we prefer certain styles of beer that that were better than anyone else. I'm curious, like, okay, so when you guys were making this decision, we're going to, you know, make the beer that we really want to drink. Um, and as you said, it, you, you've been through another craft beer boom and bust. And in that period, in that era, there was sort of more of a cookie-cutter approach. People were all making pale ales. Now people are really experimenting with craft beer and pushing the limits. What does that do for you guys? I mean, because you were, in some ways, I mean, you're the first ones out, or one of the first ones out of the gate saying, we're going to really push the flavor envelope. But So now what? Like, what do you do to stand out? Well, I I think that's honestly one of the biggest challenges, is that um, you know, since we were one one of those first breweries to kind of innovate 
and push the envelope and, you know, really part of that first, that, that I guess they used to call it the extreme beer movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's always been about innovation. Um, you know, I think we were one of the first breweries to start experimenting with chocolate and coffee. Um, we were one of the first breweries ever to put beer in a bourbon barrel. I think we were the first brewery to ever package a, a bourbon barrel aged beer. Um, playing with rye malts, we really started pushing the envelope with our fruit beers, creating the session IPA category. So we're constantly innovating. I think the the one thing that really scares me um, was, you know, 20 years ago, there wasn't a big craft consumer out there. There, there. there just wasn't a big populace of people drinking craft beer. So now the new breweries that are opening up are trying to figure out what's what can they do to differentiate themselves? And what what scares me a little bit is all the novelty beers that are coming out. You know, as Jared kind of pointed out, we are product-driven. But product-driven to us doesn't mean that you put 15 ingredients in a beer to put 15 ingredients in a beer. It means that you're making a well-balanced, uh, phenomenal product. It's got to taste good. It's, it's got to taste good. Taste, yeah. so, so you're not making an alcoholic root beer? <laughs> no. You said it, not me. Uh, uh, we have an, an alcoholic cola. Right. Um, well, well, yeah, right. So, yeah, I mean, and that's one of the things that really does scare us. I mean, with all the new breweries that are opening up. And, you know, you can't blame them. They're trying to differentiate themselves from sure. the guy on a block away, you know. Oh, you have to, right? And so... That's one of the fears. Is there all of a sudden there's going to be the entire market's going to get flooded with donut beers or you know pie beers. Right, right, right. So is this part of what drove your strategy? Because I mean, right, you struggled for a number of years. It wasn't just the first five; it was like seven more after that. Um, but even now, liquidity remains an issue. Right, you've got investors that helped you out of that, and you're still having to provide a return on investment and what you did recently that made a lot of news and generated a big conversation was you got this Spanish brewery, Mahu San Miguel, to to have a 30% stake in your company. Yeah. So um, is well, that driven by what's happening around you and this kind of like, you know, because first is important, but being last is important too, right? Or like well, lasting the distance. What, what really drove the decision with Mao San Miguel was um, – you know, over the over the last five or six years, we've been growing at you know a little north of sixty five percent growth. Yeah, which is crazy. That's amazing. It's yeah. Huge, it's, yeah, it's. I mean, it's, you you have a three hundred barrel brew house now, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. just installed a three hundred barrel brew house, Insane. new packaging line, new bottling line. So we're we're fairly used to a little bit of chaos at the brewery with construction. We've gone through, I think, six or seven. Uh, major expansions in the last seven years or so. Um, but what really drove the the deal with Mao was the fact that we are we're we're used to this this massive growth rate, and um, you know we're in currently we're in thirty four states, and we know that the not too far down the distant road is we're going to fill out the rest of the United States, and we're still young. We're having a hell of a lot of fun doing what we're doing, and. We're seeing that what what we do as North American craft brewers is changing the way people drink globally, and so we said, you know, as we started talking about this and say what what's going to happen in five years from now, and all of a sudden we start growing from sixty percent to ten percent or five percent, mm-hmm. 
and that's that got kind of scary for us. And we said, you know, you know, we're still young and having fun, and we're like, what if we take this thing to a global marketplace? And uh, you know, we wanted to find somebody who who had experience. And the folks at Mao, they're brewers, they're like-minded, family-owned. They've been doing this. They just celebrated their 125th anniversary. Incredible. And um, it felt right. And uh, they want to. They they understand what we're doing as craft brewers here in the United States is unique, and they see that this is the future um, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, and so uh, they want to learn from us, and we as North American brewers want to learn how to get our beer to a global marketplace. Mm-hmm. I I just read this week that uh, Carlsberg showed uh, disappointing profits in the past mm-hmm. quarter because and and one of the first interviews we ever did was with Miko of McKellar. Um, he was talking about Carlsberg, you know, mm-hmm. in his hometown of Copenhagen and how it's this stalwart and seen as impenetrable and just okay. never doing anything interesting, and he could just go under the radar and do all these biz- crazy, bizarre things, you know, and people just are dying for it in, in Copenhagen. And you know, I just saw that the market analysts chalked it up to other concerns, but I see it as old beer is not, not inventing your yeah, dying. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So have you guys learned anything about the world beer market since December when you Well, I think, you know, I've made a couple trips over to Europe and I just see a genuine um passion that's that's growing for uh these American craft beers. And they're, you know, they're years behind us as far as uh where they're at, what they understand and what they want. But there's a huge opportunity, just huge, especially with all the, you know, with young people coming up that aren't um, necessarily mired in the traditions of right. of whatever their country has to offer. And, and and Spain, I think, is one that's not to the level of, say, Germany or or UK with their brewing tradition. So they're very open to what we're doing and they're curious and they want to know about dry hopping and about – uh, how to make these American craft beers. So you must this be- uh, Centennial IPA, does it go over well there? That's what I was curious yeah. about because this is one of my favorite of your beers. I love the Centennial IPA because it, to me it's like an IPA, but it there's something completely different going on that I really appreciate about it. Awesome. Like, yeah. yeah, they uh, they love it, and, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be going over there and and making some Centennial IPA, and then seeing how it goes. And ideally, if we can ship beer from from that part of the country, it's gonna be that much fresher to satisfy the European market. Uh, and that's a huge plus for us. So they'll be making stuff with the Founders label in some of their pr- facilities around the world. We haven't figured that out quite okay. exactly what's yeah. going to happen yeah. yet, but that, that's the direction we want to go. I, I mean, yeah, ultimately, sure. you know, fresh beer is fresh beer. Yeah, yeah. we've, we've yeah. been we've been exporting for a couple of years now, really almost like on a you know on a project basis, small time. Yeah, very small volume, but um, there's no question. You know, we we want fresh beer. You know, with our IPAs and anything that's hop forward, we want those to taste as clean and bright as possible. Yeah. Which has been the big problem with going worldwide for oh, absolutely. Yeah. American I've spent some time in here this year, and, and not and drinking my own beer over there. Any beer from America that I had has not been up to par. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't make that trip across the ocean very well, and if it doesn't. You know, it just has, it's a perishable product that doesn't get treated right, and it and it shows. And if we can make it over there and and get it on the shelves in half the time, I mean, that's just that's not only doing us a favor; it's the, it's for good for the whole yeah. beer community. We're doing the entire 
you know, populace over there a disservice by not Absolutely. not showing the best product for it. Well, they're still loving it, though. You know, you're drinking an IPA and be like, "This is amazing," and I drink that IPA. I'm like, "You have no idea. You got to come to you got to come to Grand Rapids and drink what what I drink well, every day." Right, and we know that the reverse way, right? Like getting all of these beers from overseas that oh, absolutely, often yeah, are not. We know we're not. Well, then you go over there and drink them, and you're like, "Oh my god, it's amazing!" I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about where you're from because as you made this decision um, with Mao <laughs> thanks for letting me know how it's pronounced I mean you also said we're committed to being in, in Grand Rapids we're going to stay here and I'm curious about I mean is that still the case first of all yeah um, absolutely I mean we we had a lot of people questioning as we went through this last you know 40 million dollar expansion why isn't Founders building a West Coast brewery. Right. There's Obviously, there's no question that for the last number of years, we've been primarily on the East Coast, but we're moving westward. And as we go through this westward expansion, everyone started saying, like, why, why aren't you guys building a brewery in California? And the reality is we've, we haven't sold a case of beer in California yet. So we didn't really want to invest, you know, millions of dollars in, into a state that is unproven now. We also feel very confident in, in the Plus, our brand. Plus, sat- saturated with beer already. Too. Oh, they got plenty of their own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they do, but uh, I do think that our beers will stand out. And I think you know, well. historically, we do really, really well in mature markets because we tend to do really well where people already know great craft beer. And I, I think we can stand with the Giants. Uh, they've got some phenomenal breweries out there in California. But our beers are different. There's no question. Yeah. But so I guess my question is on the podcast, we make a virtue out of the localness of craft beer. We're not alone in that, right? But like that, you, where you're from and the community that you grow up in is, is a significant part of who you are and your ultimate success. And I'm curious what impact you think you've had on Grand Rapids. I mean, other than obviously giving Jeremy a job. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> what, what is like the expansion? Because, you know, this phenomenal rate of growth, yeah. this like forward thinking attitude, what impact has that had on the larger community that has really sustained you? You know, I, I think the beer has made a, an impact on all communities, anywhere where there's a brewery. Uh, as I said before, I, I think beer is kind of this conduit that brings people together. And it, it really always has. Um, and it's one of the things that really attracted me to the industry. But what have we done towards Grand Rapids um, and what have they done for us is, one, they they supported us when when we were a fledgling business. But what what we've done in return, um, not only do we employ Jeremy Kosmicki, but we also en- employ 316 other people. You know, I think West Michigan has really benefited, uh, not just from us, but the entire brewing community, including all the bars and retailers that have been supporting us for years. Um, it's really become a beer destination. It is, and there's a lot of new breweries opening um, all the time. And our city actually has, for its size, a whole lot of breweries. But you 20, know, it, I think 24 breweries. 24 in the, now in the metropolitan. Area. Do they come wow. to you for advice? Because oh, I mean, all the time. Yeah, sure. like what do you tell them? Well, we're looked to. You know, what should a, the newbies do? Right, well, you're looked to as you've been around for a long time, but you went through a long struggle. So, what what do you tell them about? I mean, we're we're pretty blunt. I mean, there's we we try to be as honest as we can sure. because there's there's no shortcomings of of struggles and challenges. And you want the community to be successful, you know. You don't want this brewery here to be sucking and uh, ruining the whole vibe of beer in your city. So <laughs> yeah. you want to do everything you can to. From the outside looking in, 
how would anyone know the struggles? Mm. How would anyone know the the days of you know bouncing checks constantly or not you know not being able to meet payroll and um, I mean that here's your check on Friday. Can you not cash this on Monday? Actually, (laughs) that used to be fairly common. Your face on that flyer in the post office. (laughs) (laughs) So um, no, but we we want people to be realistic about their about the the possibility of starting a brewery because a lot of people say, oh, we're going to do this as a part-time thing and, you know, uh, I'm a home brewer and I've been dreaming, it's my dream job to open a brewery and I'm just going to, we're going to open up on the weekends. And it's like, it doesn't work that way, guys. Yeah. It. I mean, it's all in because you, you really do. You have to put your life savings into it. There's tons of sacrifices, um, yeah. you know, financially, but also personally. And whenever a brewery goes out of business, I always think it kind of puts a, a black cloud sure. over over the entire industry. We were talking about working with Mao. Yeah. And um, one of the things you had mentioned was, you know, you wanted to work with a brewery instead of, like, uh, investors, private right? Investors, yeah. There's, like, some articles this week about breweries being more open to, like, private investors. Like, all these people were well, quoted, yeah. these respected craft brands, you know. Um, what's your experience been? Uh, is it... Is it that like strategy of being able to get fresh beer all, all around the world faster? Is that core to your wanting it, to work with a brewer? Ultimately, or? what it what it boiled down to is you know, and we we met with some private equity folks, really smart people, you know, that are really good at what they do, but you know, private equity, their job is to make money. Our job is to bring our our product to a, a larger audience, and the the thing that got a little scary with with private equity was, you know, they basically have these funds. They've got a five to seven years that they need to turn these things. And so after five or seven years, we said, then what happens? They said, oh, well, then we'll sell it to somebody else. Well, you kind of like to know who you're in bed with. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the folks at Mao were kind of product-driven. And the, what, what really, I think, attracted to us to them was the fact that they respected what we do so much, even as a brewery that's 20 years old or not even – and they've been doing this, um, you know, for over 125 years now. They respected us enough that they they acknowledged that they need to learn what we're doing. And, you know, th- that's really it. I mean, we, we want to bring our beer to a, a global marketplace, and they want to learn North American craft. And uh, they want to learn from the best. That's why we're here. This seems like a great opportunity. You know, there's a lot of options, a lot of roads you can go down to in, in this um I certainly am glad with this decision as opposed to, you know, some of the other options. They don't want anything to do with the beer we sell in America. So our job is not going to change other than the fact that, you know, I'm going to explore the avenue of can I make beer out there that can satisfy the European market. This is something we often talk about on the podcast, the Brewers Association, right? And um, I don't know how much it actually affects your day-to-day life as brewers and brewery, you know, owners and you know, they have this this definition of craft brewer, right, right, with the ownership stake. And sure. You guys are, like, I think... We are out. We're out. Oh, you're out now. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. cool I saw you're, your, like, number 17 on last year's, but sure. I wasn't sure well, what the, the That was the 30% would be. buyout from Mao is a... Uh, yeah. It takes us out of the, yeah. the, right. their, the Brewers Association's definition of a craft brewer. But does that matter to you guys, I guess, is my <laughs> question. You know, I... Uh, doesn't and anymore. I, I, I post, <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> well, I, I posed this question to the, the Brewers Association. So I said, so we sold 30% of our company to another brewery. Yet if we had sold 
90% or 100% of our brewery to a private equity firm, which essentially is a bank, then we're still a, we're still a craft brewery. Mm-hmm. So, so what's the difference between a bank or a brewery? Well, I'd rather be in bed with a brewery than a bank. Absolutely. I mean. So not to pat ourselves on the back too hard, but you look at our ratings, you look at you know the consistency of all of our brands, how everything we do – is is so tight and you know it's really a testament to to Jeremy and his brewing team and you know the whole team the seller team the packaging team everyone at Founders we are one of if not the best craft brewer in the world i mean i feel the quality of our product is stands up so if the ba doesn't want to call us a craft brewer anymore shame on them I'm ready to be done with the word craft beer anyway, honestly. I, really? Listen, I've never brewed to style, per se. So every time a competition comes around, I really struggle to find, you know, where, what, where does my beer fit in? Because, you know, I don't make beer to style. I make beer to taste. And um, it's just, it's not like that. So the same thing with the terming of craft beer. I make beer. It was used to be called microbrew, and now it's craft beer, and... Whatever we're, we're all just making beer, and 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 some beer is is better than other, and some beer is more interesting than other. But it's all just beer, and I wish we could get past it. Yeah, I, I don't think it matters much to the average consumer of beer, you know. Um, but does it matter to the market or to the brewers? I mean, aren't there reasons why those kind of standards are in place in terms of like? identifying what you do or um, protecting you from, like anyone, sort of we were talking about other examples of people making beers that look like or, you know, are labeled as such. I mean, are you just comfortable with leaving those choices to the consumer? Absolutely. The yeah. proof is in the pudding. Yeah. The proof is in the liquid. And so the, ultimately the, the consumer will make the decision. Well, thanks so much for sharing the beer with with us and with the world. Um, yeah, it's been phenomenal talking with you guys. Yes, <laughs> thank you guys. It's been great. Dave and Jeremy, of founders. Um, cheers! Thanks for being on screen. Cheers, guys. Yeah, cheers. Uh, we didn't get to the ridiculous yet. This is our latest backstage oh release, goodness. so make oh, sure that is ridiculous. In your downtime, you uh, yeah. find a time. We did to make our way through what five beers. We did pretty good. Yeah, I thought we did. Good. Yeah. I thought we did real good. Yeah, and thank you, Dave, for keeping us on task. <laughs> That's right. what I did. Not letting us. This is the Strange Brews Podcast. I'm Andrew Gill with Allison Cuddy. And you know that music. You've been waiting to hear it. We haven't had recommendations for a couple of episodes but uh they're back and we have a listener recommendation to get to right now hey so i'm hanging out with fan number 463 and we're drinking northern brewing company's going to the sun ipa and i definitely want to recommend this as a weekly recommendation as someone who just traveled through the area i was really surprised with the beer and i think it was a great All right. Northern Brewing Company's Going to the Sun IPA. Sounds like a good one. I will look for that when I'm in their neck of the woods. Uh, Allison, did you have a recommendation to share? I did. And there's a connection actually to our earlier story about North Korea. So one of the things that I discovered in reading about the beer scene there is that they do a lot of steam beers because steam beers don't require um, a lot of coolness to Uh. ferment. Um, and so because they have, you know, 
limited or uh, unreliable access to electricity. Steam beers are apparently very big there, and they make some good ones. And that got me thinking about Anchor Steam, one of the first uh, craft beers I can think of that I started drinking on a regular basis. Maybe it was a microbrew then. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But founded in 1965, saved from death by Fritz Maytag, the son of the Maytag uh, washing machine. Empire. Um, And it's celebrating 50 years. And I just thought that's a great summer beer. I love the steam beer. So that's my recommendation. Go out and uh, very easy to find Anchor Steam. They were bought, what, right? Yeah. Five years ago. Acquired not too long ago. I don't know too much about that sale, but. It was by a couple of guys, uh, entrepreneurs or venture capitalists who were behind Sky Vodka. But they made a deal with Fritz, who was still involved in the operations. And when he took over, he really took over. I mean, he designed, he made them into a modern, amazing, you know, like he, the whole thing was they were not just in debt, but they really didn't have a consistent recipe or anything like that. So he engineered this sale that would, in theory, keep Anchor Steam the way it is, but, you know, passing the reins of the company on. So Yeah, and I've, I mean, I haven't heard any complaints about major changes or anything like that. And, you know, I do think it's worth pointing out that uh, if you want to look for a moment when the craft brewing movement in the United States began, that moment when Fritz Maytag saved the Anchor Brewery from going out of business is probably it. It's a critical moment. Yeah, yes, I, I mean, probably the moment. Amidst when all it that, began. like, love and peace. I mean, this is like a couple of years before the summer of love in San Francisco, but maybe he was that's spreading the craft beer love. It all got imbued in Anchor <laughs> Steam. Is, it was all a, the love. Yeah. His act of generosity. Huh? Yes. Yeah. Um, it was yeah. also cheap, though. I think it was like a couple of thousand dollars to save it. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's worse things you could do with uh, an appliance uh, inheritance, you know, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, Well, that's a good recommendation. Um, I have one. uh, I tried this not uh, maybe a month ago. Um, The first episode we did of Strange Brews Mm -hmm. was at Dry Hop Brewery in um, Lakeview when they were pretty new. Remember that? Our first. That was our first official episode at Dry Hop. And that company now is getting close to opening their second location which will be called Corridor Brewing on Southport. Um, In the Southport Corridor. Corridor, yes. Um, So anyways, they invited me to come try their beers that they're making for this uh, Corridor Brewing. The beer that knocked my socks off was called Wizard Fight. It's a (laughs) IPA. Uh It's brewed with lactose. So it's like a milk stout, the flavor profile of an IPA, served on nitro, so it's like the smoothness of, you know, a classic Guinness or whatever you want to, you know, insert there. It's like a triple threat. Yeah. Triple play beer. It, it seems like it's just pulling random elements from popular beers, but it really worked together in an amazing way, a wizard-like way, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it just had so much going for it that I heartily recommend that beer um, when think, can people get it, though? I don't know the exact date they open yet, but it will be very soon. So watch very closely. You could probably see their progress if you go up and down Southport near the music box, uh, peer in the window, and 
maybe knock and ask them for a, a little sample of Wizard Fight. It's also shown up on guest taps a, a little bit around the city. Um, they might have it at Dry Hop from time to time. Um, but yeah, that is a beer worth trying and a, a strange brew, no doubt. But it, I think it works. I think it all works somehow. You know, as always, we love to get stars and ratings on iTunes or any place you listen to the podcast. So do that. And yeah, we'd appreciate it. Absolutely. And if you want an official Strange Brews fan number, which is like a key that unlocks all kinds of goodness, you can request one by emailing strangebrews at wbez.org. Strange Brews is a production of WBEZ Chicago Public Media. Like us on Facebook at Strange Brews Pod. Use the hashtag Strange Brews to get our attention on Twitter or follow us. I'm at Andrew Gill. And I'm at Allison Cuddy. You can subscribe to this and all of our podcasts in iTunes. You can also like WBEZ on Facebook and Twitter at WBEZ. Find more information about this and all our podcasts at WBEZ.org. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, our world, and beer drinkers like you. More information is available at ChicagoPublicMedia.org. Cheers. Cheers. Here's more sunshine. What kind of fool are you? Shutting sunshine on the hermit kingdom.